Hey, thank you so much, Kevin, and for everyone involved so far in the service, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for being here. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. Glad to have you you're listening later. You found us at the beginning, the tippy-top, the beginning entry point to a brand new series we're calling Identity Crisis. And this actually is going all the way back to the beginning of the year. If you were with us then, then uh, you may remember this. And if you weren't with us, and now you get to, to know this, that we opened the year with a verse. We opened the year with a verse that some of you have been in church for a long time. You know this verse. Maybe you memorized it. Some of you may be putting it on your refrigerator or have, whatever. And it's this verse in Romans 12. And Romans 12, too, it says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we said at the beginning of the year that as we start the year, we want to think about what does transformation look like in the lives of one another? If I want to continue to grow to become like Christ and have my life changed, what does that mean? And we said, you don't just wake up and say, today I want to be transformed. That's not how it works. The, the way that you reach transformation is by the renewing of the mind, that the mind must be made new, and that then results in the transformation that you want. I don't just wake up and be transformed. I wake up and be renewed. And so in that spirit, we said, let's open the year by talking about renewing our minds around who God is. Who is this God that we think we serve? Who is this God, maybe for a generation or two or three, that you and your family have worshipped or wondered about? You know, oh, or maybe the God that you have pushed back from who actually is this God that your mind might be renewed to see God in a new way that was the first several weeks of the year um, thank you to Kevin and Seth for filling the last two weeks you guys were, you were great great to hear from people who um, can continue to shape and challenge us and then now I want to take us into this next five weeks considering how can my mind be renewed around a very particular question and that is who in the world are you not just who is God, but who has God made you to be? Who has God made you to be? Not the person next to you, but you, 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 personally made you to be. Now, I figured the best way to introduce this and the best way to get this set up was to invite a couple friends into our midst this morning. And so we're going to do it virtually, but I, I have a couple guys, um, we call them the skit guys, who can help us get started on thinking about what does your personal identity look like. So check out this, and then we'll pick it right up on the back end of this. Well, I don't remember which one of us came first. Well, that's like asking which came first, the chicken or the egg, egg salad. <laughs> you see what you did there? Yeah, I finished your sentence. sentence. Sometimes it's like we're in stereo. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> when you've been friends as long as we have. You tend to lose yourself just a little bit. Some people actually think we're twins. Thank, Thank you. But you're not. We need help. This is Dan Dunkelman. Here's what the girls would call a catch. I, however, am what the girls would call a sucker fish. So I see aside Dan's life to find out what made him so cool, right? Some people would call this stalking. I refer to it as good investigative reporting. I found out that Dan was simply trying to be like Tim the Twerker and Tone. So I looked into Tim's life, and guess what I found out? Tim was trying to be like Mark Rutherford. I looked into Mark Rutherford, and guess who he was trying to be like? Moi. 
Do you see this crazy circle of life I'm living in? Nobody is being who they were created to be. It's insanity. On the flip side, it seems that the coolest guy in school was invariably trying to be like me. <laughs> Who's the sucker fish now? I have a total great sense of self. That's a lie. I don't even know my own social security number. I do. It's 15. I'll tell you this, though. I know who I am. Another lie. Woke up in the middle of the night, looked in the mirror, screamed like a girl because I thought I was being robbed. But I'll tell you this. I'm not into image. What? Well, that's a lie. This whole thing right here, this whole pony show, I stole it from Burt Reynolds. This right here, not even my real hair. Yep, bald as a bat. How do you like me now? No, seriously. How do you like me now? I'm a dad. Um, <laughs> I won't bore you with the pictures, but uh, I've been thinking about that question, you know, uh, who am I? And... Um, I don't know. I can't really answer it. <laughs> kind of sad, huh? My dad, when I was a kid, um, he always wanted me to play sports. And I have two left feet, you know. But I tried. I really did. And uh, there's there's nothing more unsettling for a kid than to... Look out on the stands and see a uh, disappointed dad. I just wouldn't want anyone. But then I, uh, I figured it out. I have a heavenly father who, he can't be disappointed in me. He made me the way I am. He gave me two left feet. So I guess he just didn't want me to play sports or dance. We know who we are. We are those people in your schools, your neighborhoods, your jobs, even social media that's going to put you in your place. That's right. It's got a lot further than just wanting your lunch money. We control your fears. We're like a virus that you can't run away from. <laughs> we own you. <laughs> Some would say that you uh, tear down others because you have such a low image of yourself. And uh, you're, you know, so insecure of being who God made you to be that it's easy to pick on the weak. You need to stop it. Well, in, in reality, some would say that you are the weak one. You stop. You know, hurt people tend to hurt people. It's like you, it's like you're reading my mail. I need you to leave us alone. All right. You're bullying us now, all right? Just, just pin it off, pin it off. Yeah, this isn't fair. I need a hug. I need a hug right now. There's a story about the 10-foot wall of life, and some people just seem to jump over it so effortlessly. Whether it's their money, their reputation, their looks, they just seem to jump right over it. Not me. I've had to climb that wall brick by brick. And if I'm to be honest, at some point, I just stopped climbing. I just relented just to sit at the wall and make fun of people that would climb or just jump over it. 
So when you ask me the question, who do I think I am? I'm nothing. I've been nothing for a really long time. And I've told myself that for so long. I really believe it. So who do you see in the mirror? When you look in the mirror, who do you see? You see a collection of your past, past failures, past mistakes. You see a picture of disappointments. You haven't quite reached the potential you thought you would or someone thought you would, maybe your mom or dad thought you would. You see the, the sham or the hypocrisy of your own life that only you really know and that others really don't see. Not the way you do. Who do you think you really are when you look in the mirror? Who, who are you? And how should you rightly think about who in the world you really are? See, the question I want to wrestle to the ground this morning as we open the series is a question around identity. It's a question that will shape, I think, the opening part of this series. I want to ask about five questions in this series each of the next five weeks. This morning I want to ask, why am I here? Next week I want to talk about what is our value and then I want to go from there into talking about what are you actually made of. And then from there I want to talk about our challenges and finally where are we going. So this morning I want to ask this question, why am I here? Why did God put me here? Why did God put you where you are? Why were you born in this generation? Why were you born in the family that you're born in? Why are you doing the kinds of things that you're doing? Why are you, why are you here? And to, to kind of get around that, I want to use this, uh, this picture up here to help me to get, get around this. Let's say that one of your, your children were to give you this picture, okay? Isn't that a great picture? So let me ask you, why is this picture here? Why is this picture here? What is the, the purpose, if you will, of this picture? Now, how, is, how would one determine the purpose of this picture? Now, we could take this picture, we could put it in front of a class of smart adults and ask them to collectively come up with, what's the purpose, what's the point of this picture? What's the point of it? And you might, in a contemporary art class, have some kind of ser significant, serious you know, discussions about you know, political underpinnings of this picture right here and the social dynamics of it and the, the tendencies. You know, maybe it's a, a view of Marxism or socialism or Democrat or Republican, or maybe, maybe you ask the person who drew it. Maybe you ask the two-year-old who scribbled this, and they would hand you the picture and be like, Hey, Dad, it's you. Because this is what we know. Whoever made it determines purpose. Isn't that true? Whoever made it determines purpose. It doesn't matter what it is. Whoever made it determines purpose. Whether it's this, this image or whether it's something else. But whoever made it, whatever the it is, determines purpose. Now, we can sometimes add purposes onto things that are made. But whoever made it, whether it's a car you drive, the bench you're sitting on, the shirt you're wearing, the little clicker I have in my hand, whoever made it determines the purpose for why it was made, which immediately begs the question, who made you and who made me? To which, if you're a Christian, you know, well, the Bible teaches at least that God made us. So why in the world would God make us? And we go all the way back to Genesis to try to answer that question. In Genesis 1.26, we read this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. So here's what Christians say all the time, that you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And this is the essence, I've said before, of humanity. This is what makes you human. But to be honest, 
This is a little bit of a struggle, maybe a little bit of an existential problem. It's a little bit of an out-of-body experience. What does this actually mean that you are an image bearer of God? And there have been some people who have tried to break this down and say, well, here's what image means. It means intellect, emotion, and will. That's what that means. I like the way John Piper puts it, and he, writes, he says this way. He says, what is image? He said, images are created to image, right? Why do you ever set up an image of anything, he writes, to image it? If you put up a statue of George Washington to be reminded of the Founding Fathers, you do that so that you can be reminded of that. Images are made to image. So if God made us, unlike all the other animals, in his image, whatever it means in detail, this it means clearly that God is the reality and we are the image. Images are created to set forth the reality. So why did God create man, Piper asks? To show God. He created little images so that they would talk and act and feel in a way that reveals the way God is. So people would look at you and look at the way you behave, look at the way you think, the way you feel, and say, God must be great. God must be real, and that is why you exist. That images are created to image, which also leads to another little bit of an existential question. How can one image God well? And what does it mean if I really want to do that? How do I do that well? Does that mean that you just be the nicest version of yourself that you can be? Does that mean that you need to take on your grandmother's morality and just be someone who does whatever grandma would do? Does that mean maybe you should take on the, the fiery passion of Jesus when he overturned the temples in the, or overturned the tables in the temple and, and that kind of courage and fire and passion? What does it actually mean, mean, really, to image God? It's a little bit still too high up in the clouds. What does it mean? To be an image bearer of God. How do I wrestle this to the ground? To try to wrestle this down to the ground, I want us to go to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, in the first book of the New Testament, in the little gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 is where I want to take us because I think that this question was asked to Jesus in albeit different terms, but it's a key question that was asked to him that I think helps us understand why we are here. So if you don't own a Bible, by the way, there's a Bible in the pew near you, and that's our gift to you. But Matthew 22, the first book in the New Testament, kind of the right third of your Bible, you'll find Matthew uh, verse tw chapter 22, beginning at verse 34, is where I'm going to start. And for context, you, I'm going to read 34 for the context, so you'll see it if you get to the um, to verse 34. I'm reading from the New International Version. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's a religious group party at the time. The Pharisees, who were the popular political party, or popular religious party, got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, before we read the answer, which you may already know, depending on how much experience you have in church or in the Bible, it's, we need to probe why would someone ask this question in the first place. Teacher, of all the things that the Pharisees could get around, where they could come together and ask Jesus why would they ask this question of all the questions to ask? What is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment in the law? Certainly they wanted to trap him. They wanted to highlight one thing so that they could you know, accuse him of missing some other things. They wanted to trap him. But underneath that, it reveals a deeper assumption. It reveals this deeper assumption that doing is at the heart of a religious expression, that doing 
not just believing, is a part of a faith response to God. It belies, it, it reveals this assumption that if you're going to have faith, faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. You can't sit there and just say, I believe, and do nothing with the belief. Faith, belief, requires action to be faith. Faith doesn't exist, again, existentially or in a cloud. It requires action. What he's asking is, of all the things that I can do with my life, which is the most important thing for me to do to show God that I love him? Which is the greatest doing thing in the law that I should be doing the most of? What is it that should be done? Not just what I should believe, but how should I then live. In other words, why am I here? What is the greatest expression of my life to God right now? What is the greatest way that I can do something to show God that I love him? To which Jesus answers. Jesus replied, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now stop right there for a minute. Just because we're in the moment, we need to stop right there. Now, if you have lived long enough, you have known people who can, quote-unquote, love God and hate people at the same time. Right? You've known people. And sometimes, if we're honest, we've been those people. Where we can say, hey, there's no problem, man. I love God. I love all that he is. I love coming to worship. But I hate those who have a different sexual orientation than me. Ooh. I hate those who are of a different political persuasion than me. I hate those who are a different race than me. I mean, I don't say hate, I just don't like them. I hate my ex. I hate the people who have turned. I mean, I can't say that out loud, that sounds too bad, but I love God. Can't wait to get to worship on Sunday. Bring it on, praise and worship music all day long, baby. Let's make that happen. But yeah, I know I don't like those people at all. I mean, I don't love them, but why would I love them? We all know people who can say, I love God, and yet at the same part of our heart, because we all are this complex, we all can do this well, at the same moment, we can also hate the people whom God has made who are living right next to us. To which I think Jesus knows that if all I do to your question is answered by saying the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, it's too existential. It's too in the clouds. It doesn't make enough sense for you. So let me make this harder and also easier and simpler for you. Let me make it more concrete. And the second, he says in verse 39, and the second is like it. Now, they didn't ask for the second, did they? He asked for the first. Just give me the first and greatest command. But Jesus, let me add to you a second. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh. Wait a minute. Love your neighbor... So the greatest commandment is now, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You're making two into one. You're making a compound sentence here. That's right. Why? Because Jesus wants to create a world where there no longer can be people who can love God and hate their neighbor all at the same time. That no longer exists. You cannot love the creator and hate that which he's created. No matter what the created has done to you, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Not in Jesus' kingdom. It's so amazing. Now, why would, this, why would this be here? Here's what Jesus, how he finishes in verse 40. He says, And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is what these Pharisees are trying to get under. What is the foundation of the law? What is the greatest thing that, that organizes the law? What is the greatest ethic, the greatest way that we can live out our lives to honor God? What is it that's underneath all of the law? To which Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. He's saying that to Pharisees who took the Ten Commandments and made them into 613. He 
Speaking to people who have made a bunch of extra laws to try to, quote-unquote, help us know how to live right. And he says to these people, this, is, this isn't it. You've gotten this backwards, and this is, becomes a profound teaching moment for Jesus. He's speaking to people who, and the Pharisees and especially the Sadducees, are experts in the law. They have made the law, they created the law in ways that were supposed to help people. But instead of the law helping people, they now use the law to condemn them. You're walking too far on the Sabbath. Certainly you must be outside of God's will. You're baking with the wrong kind of flour. Certainly you must be outside of God's will. You're not praying long enough or memorizing enough. You certainly must be out of God's will. And they're taking the law that was meant to be an expression of God's love and turning it into an expression of God's condemnation. And so when he says all the law, all the law, take all the law and the prophets and hang them, On love, the Lord your God, and love your neighbor. Because everything comes from that. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's really simple. Love comes before the law. Love comes before the law. Love drives the law. Love is underneath the law. The reason we have a speed limit in our world today is because it is an extension of what people in our world think is a loving way to drive in this community. It is not loving to have the speed limit on, on Route 30 be 120 miles an hour. That is not a loving expression of community life. People will die. The law is an expression of love. The Pharisees and religious people flip that around in a hurry. We all do this. And say, oh, I will love you if you meet my requirements. I'm going to put the law first. That you need to meet these requirements first so that I can love you. And Jesus reminds them, you want to know what the greatest, in their question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, how can I obey? Why am I here? You want to know why you're here? Not to obey a commandment. You're not here even to obey the law. You weren't put here on earth so that you could be the best obeyer of the law that has ever existed. All of the law, the, law, the reason the law was ever put into place was so that you could know practically how to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a powerful, powerful paradigm shift that Jesus gives to these Pharisees. Why am I here? Why am I here? You want to know why I'm here? To love God. To love others. To put it this way, your, your purpose, your purpose isn't tied to your beauty, to your accomplishments, to your reputation, to your kids, to your career, to your successes, to your failures, to your family, to your future, or to your fears. That's not, that has nothing to do with your purpose. It has nothing to do with what you've been created for. There's nothing to do with that. Your purpose isn't tied to any of that for you. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. I don't know what you think about when you look in the mirror. But your purpose isn't tied to any of this. Your purpose, your purpose is to image God by loving God and loving others. You've been created to image God, that people would look at you and think, oh, that is a little bit of what God looks like. And he looks like that not just because they love God. <laughs> they love me. Even though I totally disagree with everything about who they are, they love me. At the end of the day, what I want for you what I want for me, is when you put your head down on the pillow at night and you think about your day, I don't want you to rehearse your day and think, hey, it was a successful day <clears throat> because at work we nailed down the client that was kind of hanging out there. I had an opportunity to teach some kids this day. I showed some real estate 
properties to a few different people. I was on a construction site and I didn't get, um, you know, didn't fall off the roof this week. That was a pretty good, good week for me. In my world, you know, in the, the role of pastoring, you know, I got into, got out of various meetings and responsibilities. And, hey, that worked out all right. That's not my purpose. I wasn't put on earth to be a pastor. You weren't put on earth to be a real estate agent or insurance agent or a teacher or in construction. That is not your purpose. I don't want you to review your day and think, what did I do according to my vocation? I want you to review your day in accordance to your purpose. In all of that I did, in all of my teaching, and all of my real estate work, and all of my work in the ag world that I'm in, and all of my work that I'm doing with insurance, et cetera, et cetera, I want you to review that and say, how did I do in loving the people who came across my path today? Because you weren't put on the planet for your vocation, nor was I. But your purpose, why in the world are you here? Your purpose? Today, have I loved God, and have I loved the people that are right around me? Have I treated them the way that I would want to be treated? That is a clarifying orientation for me. I've told you the story before. One of my friends, uh, Sarah Thabard, she's um, a great young lady. Uh, her dad used to be my youth pastor back about five years ago when I was in high school. And um, here's a picture of Sarah who just came back from um, South Sudan. Uh, about two weeks, about a week, week and a half ago. South Sudan, by the way, um, when you're thinking about potential vacation places to get away with your loved one, that usually is not on the list. And South Sudan is on the uh, pencil, or the uh, U.S. Uh, what are they? State Department or whatever says this is a do not travel area for U.S. residents. It's war torn right now, civil war torn area. Uh, Sarah went to South Sudan for about two months. Um, in one of her posts online, and she's a nurse, she went and um, she was getting up in a small Cessna aircraft to fly to the city to pick up some uh, medical supplies. And she just was honestly posting about, you know, it is a little sobering to get in the airplane and wonder if you're going to be shot down or not, but you need to get the medical supplies to the country, and this is what people do all the time. So she's flying over a war zone to get the supplies and come right on back. And as a single American woman in that environment, has its own significant challenges. But she went... So here's what she said in her Facebook post of this week as she reflected on her trip. She said, I've been working in the ER in South Sudan for two weeks, and one of the medical assistants, a Dinka woman in her 50s named Akol, I call her Mama Akol out of respect, announced in Dinka that she had decided on a nickname for me. And by the way, these words I'm about to pronounce, I have no idea if they're right. I'm just going to move forward with them. Okay? So if anyone can correct me at some point, great. So here's this, this Mama Akol said this. She decided on a nickname for me. Uh, Neon Pete, she announced with a big smile. What does that mean, I asked the nursing students, because Mama Akol doesn't speak English. It means pretty lady, one of the students said in a heavy accent. I smiled. Thank you, I said to Mama Akol. But my heart sank a little bit because of the damaging century-old bias that lighter-skinned people are more attractive than people with darker skin. She, she went on, she said, so I was worried that she had called me pretty lady simply because my skin is white. But then another student with a better command of English spoke up, no, he said, neon Pete me doesn't mean pretty lady, it means the good lady. She calls you neon Pete because you work very hard doing good for the people of South Sudan. My eyes welled with tears and I gave Mama Akol a hug. Neon Pete, she said again as she hugged me, the good lady. And word got around town, instead of calling me Neon Kawaja, the Dinka phrase for a white woman, kids in the village began calling me Neon Pete instead. 
I've been back from South Sudan for a little more than a week now, which has given me time to process the experience and time to think about the future. And then she said this, and I want to know if you can relate in your own world. She said, in some ways, I don't have much to show for the two months that I spent in South Sudan. I didn't earn any money. I didn't do anything newsworthy. Working at a small hospital in a remote village without electricity or running water doesn't get you accolades or attention. I'm just one small person trying to do small acts of healing in a great big hurting world. Can you relate to the feelings of wondering if your day has had any meaning whatsoever? But in another way, I'm so very enriched by the time I spent there, she said. I have met South Sudanese brothers and sisters whose tenacity, dedication, persistence, and joy have left an indelible impression on me. And in spite of the heartbreaking losses, there were many opportunities to alleviate pain and offer life-saving treatment to patients who are suffering. And I was able to train nursing students and hospital staff so they can continue the hospital's healing work. I spent the last two months casting a vote with my life for how the world should be filled with compassion, healing, unity, and hope. There are a lot of things that we can live for in the world. We can live for security, for superiority, for wealth, for fame, for attention, for success, for prestige. But those ambitions often enrich us to the exclusion of others' good, building our transient ladders of pride and sandcastles of self-aggrandizement at other people's expense. But there is another way. We can also choose to live for love, using every opportunity to insist with our lives that the world deserves healing, peace, harmony, and goodness. And that's what I want to live for, step by step, day by day, patient by patient, word by word, hoping to live up to the name that Mama Echol gave me, hoping that at the end of my life I can say, Sarah the Barge, Neon Pete, the woman who spent her life doing good. Who's right in front of you in your days? Because you weren't put on the planet first to be a parent. You weren't put on the planet first to be a kid. You weren't put on the planet first to be a pastor or to be in any of the vocations that you are. You're put on the planet to do what Sarah is saying, to love. To love God, yes. Yes, 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 absolutely. With every piece of strength and ambition and passion that you have, absolutely to orient your heart to the God of the universe who made you. Yes, yes, yes. And that that can also be expressed in tandem with the kids who are around you, with your spouse who is next to you, with your significant other whom you love and care for, with your families, with your community members, with your clients, with your vendors, with your suppliers. That at the end of the day, it isn't about the deals that got done, but it is about the love that was expressed, no matter what you do vocationally. Why are you here? What's your identity? Where does it begin? Not with what you look like, not with your superiority, not with your strength, not with your ambition, not with your past failures or your future successes. It doesn't lie in any of that. What is the greatest commandment in the law? You want to know what the law is about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That as you place your head on the pillow tonight, that you can look back on the day that you had and ask, did I treat the people around me the way I would want to be treated? That I loved my God by loving others honestly, sacrificially, humbly, no matter the cost. That is why you're here. That's why I'm here. How can I? 
love those right in my space. So this is the opening ideas. Why are you here? Now, tomorrow, next week, not tomorrow, next week, next Sunday, I want to ask the question, what is your worth? What is your value? What makes you valuable? And speak to the messages that sometimes lead us in the wrong direction. For this week, love your neighbor, love your God with all that you have, while you do the great things that you do with the skills that God has given to you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together as a people, to hear from so many this morning, to be encouraged by Emmanuel and his family, to be able to see Bobby and Michelle and and the work that they're doing in Taiwan, to be able to hear of the opportunities that lie ahead for this church, to be aware of people in our midst who are going through suffering and difficulty. We, uh, We know that you're a God who sees all and cares for all. So in all of this space, God, I pray that you would help us, no matter our age, to pull back a little bit and see again these simple ideas that we have been made, we've been put here on this planet, not to lose ourselves in the ambition of our vocation and not to lose ourselves even in our identities as parents or moms or dads or husbands or wives, but that we can lose ourselves in the love that you have made us to exhibit to you as our Father, as our Creator, and also to our neighbor, sacrificially. That that becomes the great judgment or the evaluation, the great filter through which we run our days. And so I pray that you give us the courage to do that, to see our days as incredible opportunities, to love every client, every vendor, every supplier, every classmate, every teacher, every student, every mom and dad, every child, to touch them well, with the love of God, the sacrificial love of God. So we pray that you would take our lives, you would take these moments, take these days that we have, and let them flow, let them flow in and out of your regular love. And we pray this asking for your help with it in Jesus' name.